grab a copy of God's word, whatever you have with you on your phone, a paper Bible, and turn to Isaiah 53. We're actually going to be starting in, in chapter 52 and verse 13 and reading right through chapter 53 this morning. As you're turning there, if you've just joined with us and you're just, uh, for the first time, we're in the middle of a series right now called The Kingdom. And we're, we're tracing this, this, this idea of the story of God's kingdom that you read all through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And, and last week, we're talking about King David and how David was promised that from his line, from his family, would come a king that would bring hope, that would bring healing. A king that would restore the, the shalom, the, the Hebrew word for peace and, and order and harmony. That, that shalom that was in the Garden of Eden before sin came in and invaded. And a, and a king would come to restore that. That there, There's a war between, between us and God. A war caused by sin and, and those prophesied, David, through your line, a king's going to come that would, that would finally, there'd be victory in that war. And so David, excited about that, I'm sure if you, if you were in that time and you heard about this prophecy, David's son Solomon comes along. He becomes king. He's a phenomenal king to start with. He's, he's full of wisdom. There, there's prosperity and success in the kingdom. And you'd have to wonder, is this it? <coughs> is Solomon, this king that we're promised, is, is, is the peace and shalom and victory coming through him? And unfortunately, Solomon's life ends tragic, tragically. In the sense of this, that his heart slowly turns away from God. Solomon marries so many women, so many wives, so many other women on the side because he's king. He'll get whatever he wants. So he has all these concubines as well. And eventually his heart drawn into that sin further and further and further. He's further and further away. He stops worshiping God. He actually begins to build temples and worship other religions that these other women that he was with were bringing into his life. And in fact, at the end of his reign, the kingdom fell apart. The kingdom of, of Israel was actually split in two. In the north, there was a northern kingdom of Israel. In the south, there was Judah. In the, in the north, Israel had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king until in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and completely took over the northern kingdom. Isaiah, who we're going to be reading about this morning, he prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah in fact, in, in his time of prophesying, he prophesied during four kings' reigns. There, there was Uzziah, remember, remember Isaiah chapter 6, in the year of, of King Uzziah. So he prophesied during King Uzziah, Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. Now Ahaz, if you read scripture, no history, he was a pretty bad dude. The other three were, were pretty good kings. In fact, Hezekiah may, may have been the, the best king after David. But the one that followed Hezekiah was a king named Manasseh one of the worst kings in Israel's history, in Judah's history. In fact, he was the king where, that, that history would say that he was the king who actually sawed Isaiah in half with a wooden saw. You read in, in Hebrews where it says some of them were cut in half. That, that tradition would say that, that was Isaiah and that Manasseh was the king who did that. He, he killed Isaiah in that way. Eventually, Judah would go into captivity as well. The Babylonians would come in. The temple would be destroyed. The capital would be destroyed. But it, it's in the darkness of this time when, when, when people are going, is there going to be a king? Because everything seems so hopeless that Isaiah comes in and it could not get any darker, could not be any more hopeless. And it's here that God steps in and says, there's hope. The king is coming. And God, through Isaiah, prophesies. Isaiah prophesies about this coming king. In fact, let's read about this coming king. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Here's a description of the coming king. Behold, my servant, talking about this king, as a servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his body... Sorry, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths because of him so that that which has not been told them they see. That which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a, a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he's poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. A long piece of scripture, but you know, there are many, many theologians who would say this is the greatest piece of scripture to point to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. You see the New Testament quoted over and over again. But here's the thing is, as Isaiah prophesies of this coming king, and he, he lists out in detail, this is what he will look like. This is what he will do. I mean, think about yourself going to the movies and, and what, what kind of person you are as you go to the movies. Are, are you the kind of person when you go to the movies, you just enter into the story and it doesn't matter how crazy the story is, how preposterous it is, you're just like right in there, like this is amazing. Or, or are you the other kind of person, you go to movies and you kind of see everything that's wrong in the movie? Like, oh, as if that would happen, right? Like, like when, when you saw, if you've seen the Star Wars movie, the, the newest one, and, he sees, and they have those bomber ships that are going and they're dropping bombs in space. Were you the person going, oh man, this is awesome. I, I hope they drop those bombs and, and it, it goes right. Or are you the person going, wait a minute, dropping bombs in space? There's no gravity in space. How do bombs drop in space? Like which were you as you watch that, right? Uh, I was in the movies once and I was watching a, a, a James Bond flick and, and it was one of the ones where, where he takes a motorcycle off a snowy cliff, chasing a helicopter, brrr, off, the, off the motorcycle, brrr, gets the helicopter, right? And I'm like, this is awesome. That's the kind of guy I am. There's a person in front of me going, oh, as if, that would never happen, right? So I just said, really? I thought this was a documentary. Thank you for clearing that up, Right? What, what kind of person are you? I mean, if, if you're skeptical, you ask questions, right? Or, right? You want proof. And you're thinking, yeah, this whole idea of a kingdom story, that's a great story, pastor, but, but how do we know it's true? Like, I want some evidence about this stuff. Like, if, if I'm gonna do this whole Jesus thing, I better see some clear evidence that Jesus is who scripture says he is. That, that's where prophecy comes in. And, and you begin to look through all these prophecies. And, and this one we just read in Isaiah 52, 700 years before Jesus shows up. And it's saying, hey, let me describe him to you. So you know when he shows up. I was thinking about just this past week, I, I bought an, an iPod Touch off Kijiji for, for one of my daughter's birthdays. And, and as I'm talking to the, the guy I'm buying it from, he turned out he was a student here at BML, and, I'm, and we're, we're like talking, okay, I'll show up. When, when do you want me to go? Okay, I'll be there at 3.15 at BMLSS, the front parking lot. I'll be driving a black Subaru. I'll be wearing a black jacket with a black vest over top, a puffy vest, and I wear glasses, and it, Right? I said, and my name's Kai, and your name is, right? And so we, I show up. Now, Now, what are the chances? What are the chances if, if on that same day at 3.15, some other person driving a black Subaru were to show up wearing a black jacket with a black down vest over top and named Kai wearing glasses shows up and actually has also wants to buy an iPod Touch from Kijiji from this guy. What are the chances? It'd like, be crazy, right? Astronomical. There's no way that would happen. It, 
Look at this passage of scripture we just read. Isaiah says this in verse five, he says, he'll be wounded and bruised. He says, Jesus will, in verse seven, Jesus will stand silently before his accusers, even when they taunt him. In verse nine, it says he's gonna be buried in a rich man's tomb. Verse 12, it says he, he, he prays for his persecutors. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing the detail to which prophecy points to the coming King Jesus. Now, now, now you might be sitting here going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, that's, that's great. You, you're like rammed off four of them. Maybe that's just coincidence. In scripture, there are about 322 direct prophecies about the coming King, about Jesus coming. And that doesn't even mention all the stories in the Old Testament that all point to him. When you're reading, you go, man, that so, so reminds me of Jesus when he comes. In fact, let, let me go through some of these prophecies real quick. Scripture tells us the Messiah, the coming Messiah, would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. He'd be from the line of Abraham, Genesis 22, 18. He would be a descendant of Judah, Genesis 49, 10. He'd be from the household of David, Jeremiah 23, 5. He'd be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. He'd he'd be given gifts at birth, Psalm 72, 10. But then he would be forced after that to flee an evil king who wanted to kill all the children in the regions of Bethlehem, Jeremiah 31, 15. He'd be exiled to Egypt as a kid, return home to Israel from there, Hosea 11.1. 1. He would claim to be God with us, Isaiah 7.14. He'd be a teacher of parables, Psalm 78.2. He'd be preceded by a messenger crying in the wilderness, Isaiah 43. He'd begin his ministry in Galilee, Isaiah 9.1. He'd enter Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, Zechariah 9.9. In his de- just surrounding his death, more than 20 prophecies get fulfilled in that. Psalm 41.9 says he'd be betrayed by a friend. Zechariah 11.12 said he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver and then that silver would be thrown into God's house and used to buy a potter's field, Zechariah 11.13. In the hours before his death, he'd be abandoned by his friends, Zechariah 13.7. He'd be accused by false witnesses, Psalm 22. Sorry, 35, 11. He'd be mocked, Psalm 22, 7. He'd be beaten and spat upon, Isaiah 56. His clothes would be split up and gambled for, Psalm 22, 18. He'd physically stagger under the weight of his affliction, Psalm 109, 24. He'd have his hands and feet pierced, Psalm 22, 16. He'd experience great thirst, Psalm 69, 21. He'd have his side pierced. Zechariah 12, 10. Despite a tough life and a horrible death, not one of his bones would be broken. Psalm 34, 20. He would die at midday, and during the hour of his death, darkness would miraculously descend upon the earth. Amos 8, 9. He would be resurrected to the Father's right hand and pour out gifts on his followers. Psalm 16, 10, and Psalm 68, 18. Maybe all these are just coincidences, you say. You know, mathematicians say that the odds of all of these things randomly falling on any one person is one to 10 to the power of 157. What's that mean? It means means the odds are one in 10 followed by 157 zeros. In fact, there's a, a law in mathematics called Borel's Law that says that statistically anything that's within one, the odds of one in 10 to the 50th power is considered impossible. It just can't happen. There's zero possibility of it happening. One in 10 to the 50th. These are one in 10 to the 157th. In fact, in fact mathematics say this, mathematicians say this. <clears throat> one in 10 to the 16th would be like this. For something to happen that's one in 10 to the 16th power would be like if you were to take Ontario and cover all of Ontario with toonies up to our knees, all of Ontario. You can stop at the border of Manitoba and Quebec and the States, but you just fill the whole province filled with toonies up to our knees. Then you take one loony and you throw that somewhere in Ontario. Then you take a blind guy that you throw out of a plane, okay, with a parachute, you throw him out of a plane with a parachute, and, and he lands and reaches around, and him pulling out that loony, the chances of that are one in 10 to the 16th power. 
Like, okay, okay, maybe it wasn't a coincidence. I'm still skeptical. Maybe the disciples, they knew the Bible so well that they could make all this stuff up. They're like, well, make sure we put that in there. Make sure we say that this happened. Can you imagine the disciples all sitting around and going, hey, hey, Matthew, Matthew, Jesus is supposed to ride on a donkey. Get that in there. Get that in there. So we go, no, no, it's a borrowed donkey. Matthew, wake up. No, no, a borrowed donkey. Make sure it says, think about that. The Romans were in power. The, 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 Leaders of Israel, the religious leaders of Israel, they were the ones who were controlling and they were the ones who for sure would not want this to get out. They had a ton of motivation to disprove all of this. For the first 300 years, the Christians weren't in power. They weren't in control of recording history. All of this to say this, and we're talking about the coming king being prophesied here. When we talk about put your faith in Jesus, Put your faith in what God's word has to say. I'm not talking about, hey, have faith in something that's kind of, sort of possible. Put your faith in something that's, the foundation isn't so sure. No, 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 here's what faith really is. It's when what you can't explain is overcome by what you can't deny. That's what faith is. It's, it's when what you can't explain comes face to face with what you can't deny. The king has come, and his, his, his name is Jesus. So, so with all that in mind, and, and we really want to pay attention, if, if that's the truth, if, if, that's, if that's what Isaiah is talking about, what does this mean in my life today? If, if Jesus is this coming king, what's this tell about the story of my life? Well, look at verse 6 of, of Isaiah 53. Verse 6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. So if you're looking at the story of the kingdom, you're thinking, okay, where do I fit in God's story? Like, what character do I play? So the, we've got this king coming, so, so who am I? am I? Am I the king? Well, obviously, no, I'm not the king. You and I are not the king. From the, the beginning of the story, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you and I, humankind, we are, we've been running from God. <coughs> Isaiah 53, he says here in verse 6, he says, we, we've turned to our own way. Just like sheep, we're running around. We, we think we know better, so we go where we want to go. <coughs> like sheep. Now, the, the fact that we're not a church full of sheep farmers, may, maybe being called sheep doesn't really land on us with, with the same weight it would land on somebody who, who understood about sheep. We think, oh, we're like sheep. God thinks we're really cute and cuddly. I like that, right? But actually, to be called a sheep, to know something about what sheep are, it's not really a compliment to be called a sheep. Sheep are notoriously dumb, right? They're just not that bright. They will always just walk into trouble if nobody's leading them. They'll, they'll, they'll walk right into predators. They're even known to just walk off the edge of a cliff. They'll, they'll walk to, the, to get water, but they'll fall in and walk right into raging rivers. And you can imagine, if you've seen sheep, they're not winning any medals at the Olympics for swimming, right? They're, they're like, if you're super overweight with really tiny arms and legs and you're wearing a massive wool coat and you get thrown into the water, that's a sheep, right? They die in that, in that case. Now, why, why are they always falling off cliffs and why are they always wandering into predators? Why are they always getting in trouble? It's because the, the, it's also, they, they don't have good eyesight. They can only see just a little bit ahead of them. And usually a sheep's mind is filled with this, looking for something to eat. Gotta find some grass to eat. That's all they're thinking about. So their heads are down. They're just looking for more grass. And, and in fact, it's known this, that, that sheep will eat grass and keep eating and keep eating. If you don't lead them to new grass, to better grass, they'll just keep eating and just start eating the dirt. We're called sheep. It's also this. I read this online. I thought this would be funny to see. Sheep, if their coats grow too big, if they just, the, the wool gets really thick, if they've eaten too much and they're a bit of an overweight sheep with a really big coat, if they fall over, they can't get back up. They're like turtles, just these sheep. Can you imagine seeing a field of sheep, just their legs there? And what happens is because they fall over and they, without help, they can't get back up, they're, they're, they're an easy target for prey or they just die of exposure. So here's the thing, I, I love God's word because God's word does not candy coat anything. It just laser beams right in on the heart of the human condition. It says you, you and I were like sheep. 
So we start to wonder, well, why do people act the way they do? And, and philosophers and sociologists say, well, I don't know why people act the way they do. Why is there so much brokenness? Why does this stuff happen? It's our environment. If we can just make our environment better, if we just make what's going on around us better, that would take care of the brokenness. That would explain why people are the way they are. Here's what I was thinking this week, thinking about that. I mean, if you, if you have kids, how many have multiple kids, all raised in the same home, yet completely different children. I, mean, I have three girls, all of them incredibly different. In fact, there was one day this was highlighted to me. We, someone had lent us a very nice sports car to drive. And it was only a two-seater. And, and so, so I was taking each of the girls for a ride one at a time. Right, so my oldest gets in, and here's the difference. My oldest gets in, we take off in this car, and all the way through the drive, all she's saying is, hey, Dad, Dad, what's the speed limit here? Dad, are you allowed to go this fast? Dad, there might be police here. Dad, just firstborn, right? That's how they, that's how they roll usually. And just one, Dad, Dad. So the second one gets in, my secondborn gets in, and her first reaction as I take off driving is looking over at the speedometer, and she says, it says I can go 340 kilometers, Dad. Come on. <laughs> right? Pray for us as she enters into teenage years. But right, that's her. My thirdborn, all she did the entire time driving is just laugh uncontrollably as we're driving around. Three all grow up in the same home, yet so different. It's not an environment. Your kids come out with, with a bent about them. With, with just, this is just who they are. There's just something about who they are. And the Bible answers the question of, of why the bent to brokenness in us. It's because we're like sheep. Because we're not that bright all the time. Because we need help. So much help, Psalm 51 says that we're born into iniquity. We're born in sin. That's our bent. That, that like dumb sheep, we always think we know the best way. That's us. That, that's who we are in the story of the kingdom. And it's not hugely flattering. And yet, and yet you can also see the compassion and the love and the care of God in calling us sheep. Where God's saying, you're confused. You're wandering. You're helpless. You're lost. And the king does not just write us off. He comes to find us. I mean, there's the difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ versus any other religion in the world. Every other religion says we are searching for God. Where the scripture says, no, you're not. You're not searching for God at all. God's searching for you. He came looking for us. Now, why would he do that? Why would God look for us lost ones, ones who've rebelled against him, ones running away from him? Well, Isaiah 43, 4 says, because he loves us. In fact, the, the verse actually says, because you are precious to me, God says. You're precious in my eyes. And what's that mean, precious? To, be, to call something precious, it would mean that you'd be willing to sacrifice for it. You'd say, there are things I will give up for this thing because this is precious. Think about if you have kids, how precious your kids are to you. That if a doctor would say to you about one of your children that, that hey, your kid is sick and they're going to die if, if this surgery, if this, this, this medicine isn't given to them, but this is how much it's going to cost. It'll cost this much. But you, your kids are pressed. You're like, whatever it costs, I'll mortgage everything. I'll give that up because that's not precious to me. But my kid is. And God says, my sheep are that precious. If they wander, if they're lost, I am giving up everything to find them. I, mean, I love how Jesus describes it in Luke 15 where he says, I'm the shepherd of these sheep. And if, if one lost sheep in my fold of a hundred, if one goes missing, I'm risking it all to go get that one. I mean, there are a couple times in our, in our family where, where our kids got lost. Never once when we discovered, hey, one of our kids isn't here. I didn't turn to Libby and go, meh, we got two more. Two out of three, that's pretty good. Let's just go. No, you don't do that, right? You're like, no, no, I'm going to drop everything. I, mean, I want to look for them. I want to search. And, and here's this king searching. But the crazy thing is, the king doesn't just search for us as lost sheep. Look at verse 4 of chapter 53. He says, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with his stripes. That word stripes there means being whipped. With his scourging, we are healed. Now, why would a shepherd do that? Why would a shepherd give their life for a sheep? Why would the creator of the universe give his life for the created? It doesn't make sense. When you do the comparison, the creator for the created, a shepherd for a sheep? I mean, my wife and I were just watching a TV show last night and it was getting to the climax part of the, of the show where the dad, the house is on fire. He gets his kids and his wife out of the house and then here's a barking inside the house of the dog. And he, he rushes it. He risks his life. In fact, he actually dies saving this dog. Spoiler alert if you know what I'm talking about, right? And he goes in and, say, and brings the dog out. And I turn to Libby right there and I'm like, just so you know, if our house burns and we're outside, the pets are going to die. <laughs> I am not risking my life to go rescue some cats, a dog, and a hamster. We got a zoo in our home, but I'm not going back in there. It just doesn't make sense. So, so why would God the creator give his life for the created? It is a crazy kind of love that, that you're that precious to the king. That the king is seeking after, loving those who don't love him, searching for those, laying down his life for those who are running. And, and I mean, how do we even get our heads wrapped around that? I mean, how could we ever leave church knowing about that, hearing about that? How could we ever wake up in the morning knowing the truth, going, eh, God's grace, it's pretty cool. It's unbelievable. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, he was called the Prince of Preachers. He was just a phenomenal communicator. And he said this, he said, if there's one subject that makes me back away from the platform, utterly ashamed of my poor, feeble words, it is this subject. The love of Christ is the most amazing thing under heaven, if not in heaven itself. God's grace is amazing. But Isaiah goes on that God says that it's, it's even more than that. The king turns the tables on us here. Look at verse 7. We're the sheep, okay? We're the sheep in the story, but look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like what? Like a lamb, like, like sheep led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He, he turns the tables. That this coming king, Jesus, he comes and takes our place. We're, we're these sheep who think we know better than God. Where the shepherd says, hey, come this way. I know where there's green grass. I know where there's still waters. I, I know where there's life for you. And we say, no, I'm smarter. I know better. Look, God, I know what your word says, but I know what's better for relationships. Listen, listen, I know what's better for this bitterness I got. I, I know what's better for how I handle my money. I know what's better for how I do life. I know what's better for what makes me happy and brings me joy. And this king comes in that moment of rebellion and says, I'll tell you what, you're on your way to death as you run that direction. I'll take your place. I'll be crushed for your iniquities. I'll be wounded for your transgressions. I'll stand in the gap for you. I will take the punishment that you and I deserve. Jesus, I'll take that punishment. I'll bore the wrath of justice poured out that should be poured out on you from a holy, righteous God. I'll take that. I'll be crushed when you should be crushed. That's what makes this idea of the coming king just not make sense. Like, man, if a king's gonna come, you'd be hoping for a king to come in power and victory, but, but Jesus shows up and he doesn't show up like a normal king. I mean, Isaiah says he comes and, and you wouldn't even notice him. He rises up like a shoot out of dry ground. You, don't, you wouldn't say that about a king. You'd be like, no, a, a king comes in power. A little bit like David, how he was overlooked as a small shepherd boy. When Jesus shows up, he doesn't amaze people with power or wealth. He comes like a servant. Isaiah predicts that, that his, the servant will come, like, like a slave, like a sheep. He says, I'm coming to bring healing and life. I'm coming to pay for your transgressions. I'm coming to take care of your iniquities. I'm coming to bring peace and healing. 
I mean, think about how amazing that is. If Jesus came in, if what this is saying is, is if Jesus just came just to forgive sins, if, if it was just, hey, everything you've done in your past, don't worry about it anymore. I'm taking care of that. Your slate's wiped clean. That would be pretty good. That'd be pretty good. But it's even greater than that. It's even better than that. Because he says, by my stripes, by Jesus' stripes, by his sacrifice on the cross, we're healed. That, that, that bent of our heart, even that is transformed. God says, I'm not just going to take care of the symptoms of this problem. I am going after the disease to bring a cure for it. I mean, imagine, imagine your doctor tells you you have a life-threatening disease and there's a cure for it. But he says, I'm, I'm just going to give you some painkillers so you don't feel so bad. And, and I would tell you what, why don't you eat some kale and go gluten-free? Will that help? Not at all, but do that. Stretch in the morning and well, that might make me feel kind of good in the, during the day, but, but if there's a cure, I would rather have the cure. And, and listen, if, if, if we pursue after religion, which says do more, do these things, and, and earn your way to God, and, and go to church more, give more money, do more good works, it's exhausting, it's depressing. Why? Because if that's our hope for eternity, if you haven't given your life to Christ and you're on that treadmill of good works, it is exhausting and depressing because your heart is never changed. The disease is still there. And Jesus steps in, he goes, listen, listen, I'm coming to take care of the external transgressions, the sin that you've committed, but I'm also coming to straighten up your crooked heart. I'm coming to bring healing so you don't need to live a broken life anymore. I'm coming to change your heart, to change everything. I mean, that's why it's called the gospel. That's why it's called good news. You know that, right? I think I've said this before, that, that good news, gospel is just a word that's just kind of ripped out of history. It's just a, a word that, that the Bible writers took. It, it's a word that, that when a king won a victory far away, they would send gospel, good news, back to the, to the city to say, victory's been won. See, that's different. The good news that is different than the king sending instructions, hey, here's what you need to do. Build the walls up better. Get some weapons out. Store up some food. Get ready for a fight. No, no, that's not gospel. That's religion. That's tiring. Jesus says, no, there's good news. The victory's been won. The king has won. That's our hope. That, that we have sin that's been taken from, from us and then in its place we get Christ's righteousness. A heart renewed in fact, if, if you memorize scripture, here's a great verse to memorize, and we should memorize scripture, just to let it wash over our hearts and souls. It's so good to have God's word hidden in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 5.21, phenomenal verse. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness, righteousness of God. What a cool verse. What, what a great promise to hold on to when, when, when things look bleak to grab hold of that promise that, that us who knew sin, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin that we might have the righteousness of God. So, so because of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection, for those who put their faith and trust in him, that in this moment right now, God looks at you and sees through Christ, he sees his perfect, holy perfection. In you. So, so not only that your sins are forgiven, but he sees his perfection through Christ in you. It's why Paul in Philippians 3 would say that he counts everything as a loss because of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. He says, because of that truth, because I've been made new, he says, everything else, everything else, all my reputation, all the accolades that I would try to grab a hold of, all the things that I would normally do religiously to make myself look good, everything I try to do to make myself feel whole, to cover shame, it's a loss, Paul says. He goes, I consider it a loss. In fact, the, the word he uses there, the, the Greek word is skubulon. And I, I don't know a lot of Greek words, but I remember this one because skubulon means dung. He goes, I consider it animal waste. It's, it's, it's dung. All the other stuff that, I, that I've used, all that other stuff I try to make me feel whole, take care of my bent heart, it's animal waste compared to what? Compared to the good news of Jesus Christ. 
In Romans 8, 34, it says, who's to condemn us? We have Christ's righteousness. It says Christ Jesus is the one who died. He's the only one who could condemn. He says, I, I could condemn you, but I don't. Why? He says, because Jesus Christ, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I, mean, I love that, that Jesus right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, is interceding for us, praying for us. Because if you know Christ, you have his righteousness. He's not praying, saying, hey, hey, look what they did. You can fire a lightning bolt that way sometime. Oh, see these guys over here? Not doing good. Pestilence would be good for them. Like, that's not what he's praying. He's, he's, he's our advocate, Scripture says. He's praying for us. He's in heaven right now, standing beside the Father, saying, that one's mine. They have my righteousness. So what do we do with all of this? If, if this is who the coming king is, if this is who Jesus is, what, what do I do with this? Well, here's the first thing we need to do with this. We need to believe. We need to believe. We, we, need, we need to embrace this. Now, when I say believe, I, I don't just mean believe like in the evidence of the prophecy. Man, this sure is true. But I, I think this, I hope you're picking up on this throughout this series. We keep talking about the story of the kingdom, that there's a story being told here. And, and when you hear the story laid out, it's like, man, that almost sounds like a fairy tale. And aren't fairy tales too good to be true? Well, C.S. Lewis just an amazing author and theologian. He was writing an essay on mythology because that's what his, his doctorate was in, was in mythology. He was writing an essay on fairy tales and mythology. And he says this, that, that fairy tales are a deep expression of a yearning in our hearts. And he says, we write those kinds of stories not because we're just making them up. He says, because there's a hunger in our heart for the very thing we were created for that God's placed that yearning in our hearts. So what's that mean? It means when you watch a really good movie, you ever get this, where you're just watching, you just, man, this just, it just feels good. It just, when, when, the, when the hero wins, when the, the bad guy is taken out and everything's going, and you walk out of the movies, you ever walk out and go, man, I wish that was just true in real life. That's your heart yearning for the truth of the kingdom story, yearning for the gospel. You see the gospel in so many good stories. You just think of Disney's, Disney movies. Beauty and the Beast. The gospel all over that thing. Have you seen Beauty and the Beast? Where, where, what is that? It's a story about a guy so disfigured beyond all human likeness because of pride, because of selfishness, and, and it turns him into this beast. A beast so that nobody wants to be around this guy. But more than that, he doesn't want anybody around him either. You ever feel that way? Man, if you really knew my heart, if you really knew who I was inside, you, you wouldn't want to be around me. And so what do we do? We, we hide out, we fake it, we try to cover up the beast in us. We keep people at a distance. We try so hard to be accepted. But in that story, it was only the kiss from the beauty, only the kiss from Belle that, that, would, that would free the beast. Now the question you have to ask when you're watching that movie, that, that cartoon, you're like, man, why would she ever kiss the beast? He's a beast because she loved him. It's the gospel being displayed. Here's the thing, though. Jesus didn't just kiss the beast. He, he went a step further than, than Bell did. He became the beast in our place so that we now could be the beauty. And deep down, our hearts yearn for that to be true. And we know that that kind of love exists and we yearn for it and we long for it, which is why, which is why the gospel appears in so many stories. And for sure, it's hard for us to believe it. Isaiah 53.1 says, who has believed what he's heard from us? This is tough for us to get our heads wrapped around. I would say this, believe it this morning. What, what do I mean? I mean, rest in the gospel this morning. If you're running around trying to perform and you think this is what I need to just rest in the gospel and let the gospel press you to do what you need to do. Surrender this morning to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where you say, I'm a sheep, I'm not the king, you're the king. 
And, and as you rest, as you surrender, I would say another thing you do is, is this, not, not just believe in this, but take comfort in the truth of the gospel. Take comfort in the coming king. We, we have a king who understands grief and sorrow. We, we have a God who's not detached from all our pain, but enters into it. So when you find yourself in a place of suffering, when you find your family in a place of suffering, when you find those you love in pain, to, to read this and recognize, to understand, wait a minute, wait a minute. Our God understands. He carries our grief and sorrow. And it's so comforting to be the sheep in that story. It's so comforting to, to hear God say, my little child, my little flock. Why? Because as the child, it's, it's different for us being the child. You, you don't ask your kids, young kids, hey, hey, I need to do the family budget for me tonight. You don't get your kids to, to change out your, your winter tires over when spring comes. It means that as God calls us kids, when we don't understand what's happening, we can trust that he's gonna take care of us. That he's gonna do what only he can do. And, and scripture's so clear that when we follow Christ as Christ follows, and we, when we're living out the gospel, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be troubles. He said, hey, you're gonna have troubles. You're gonna suffer for my name's sake. But take comfort. I'd say third and last thing is this. So believe it, take comfort in it, be on mission. If you, if you know Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, then, then when you read through this, it should challenge us to be on mission. To be on mission. It says that in the end of chapter 52, it says that, that many who, who are astonished at him, who didn't know him, now will know him. What's he talking about? They're saying that after Christ's resurrection, there are gonna be many who would hear the, the, that the gospel would go out and, and that goes out through us. Now, what's it look like to be on mission if you read through these chapters? Well, here's what it looks like to me. I read this and go, wow, Christ's life and his work was marked by suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and theologian during World War II, he was, he was put to death by Hitler for standing up to Hitler and opposing him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That when Christ calls you, he bids you to come and die. That's the mission. And some of you here have felt that. You've felt the sacrifice of what it is to stand up for Christ, to follow Jesus. You felt that sacrifice. And yet many here, though, we'd have to admit that, man, my life doesn't look like this picture of Jesus. Paul prays in Philippians 3.10, he prays that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. We'd say, man, that's what I want. I want resurrection power. I want to know that. The verse goes on and says, and share in the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know the power of the resurrection and share in his sufferings. I mean, do we, do we have lives that would, that would have that kind of suffering where, where we're dying to self? where we're speaking with boldness, where, where we're sacrificing our needs for the needs of others, where we're saying to God, not my will, your will be done. Or how many of us have lives that don't look anything like Jesus? How many have stopped fighting for righteousness? Stopped serving, stopped giving, stopped loving, and you're like, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but I know Jesus. I've given my life to Jesus. Uh, what's, what's the least amount I need to do that won't cost me that much? And I, mean, I kind of think of myself going through high school. In high school, that's how I did high school. I would ask the teacher, coming as the, as the year's going on, hey, what's my grade? What do I need to get in this final exam to pass? And I was actually looking to see, do I even need to write the stupid final exam to get this credit? I want to do the least amount of work to get out of that, right? And, and how often do we treat the Christian life that way? I mean, if you, if you go to the gym and you never lift weights, you're not working out. And, and Paul said the Christian life, it's like a fight. It's like a race. Just because you're in the ring, just because you're hanging out of the track does not mean you're fighting or racing. So you think about this week, how many opportunities have you had? How many opportunities have I had this week to sacrifice for my family? And I just walked right past those. How many opportunities? 
There was somebody this week, and it just happened this week, who I was in between meeting with people, and I was rushing around. My day was crammed full of stuff to do, and I'm going from one person. I just drove back in from meeting one person, going to meet another person. There was a person right there, and, and, and I knew what they needed for me was some time, some time just to be with, just to, to talk and, and to, to be with them. But, but you know what I did? You know what I did? I'm like, I can't sacrifice it. I got to keep going. I didn't look like Jesus in that moment. My comfort took precedent. My comfort was more precious to me. I mean, how many times have we missed out on the opportunity to be on mission? How many times would we say as North American Christians, well, I'm just looking to find where my passion is. I'm looking for what fulfills me as a Christian. And I gotta think as Jesus stooped to wash the disciples' feet, he wasn't doing it because that was his life passion to be fulfilled. I just, I'm a foot washer. That's what I, he did it to serve. What are the areas where Christ is calling you to, to serve? And you're like, yeah, but I don't know if I wanna give up that. If our Christianity is never uncomfortable or never painful, we're doing it wrong. If our Christianity is never uncomfortable, never painful, we're doing it wrong. Do our lives look like the life of the one who we say we follow? Here's the thing. We don't fight and strive and struggle as a way to reach. And if I do these things, then God will love me more. No, no, no. Why do we do it? We do it because we recognize the victory's already been won. All that other stuff, I can count it as loss, as dung. Why? Because I have Jesus. I already have the treasure. The victory's always been won, already been won for me. So now I can serve. I can give. I can sacrifice. Why? Because I know that these present sufferings don't even compare to the glory that I'll see in heaven. I know that it doesn't even compare to knowing Jesus here on earth. And so we see Jesus We want to look like Jesus. We want to live our lives on mission like Jesus. As the uh, worship team comes up, as we end off this morning, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have the, um, those who are serving communion to, to come and to hand out communion. We're going to, we're going to end in this time of the Lord's Supper. And as we do that, I, I've got a couple invitations for you in this. As they pass out the elements and, the, and, and as it goes by, there are two cups there. Grab them both. They're stacked on top of each other. The bread's in the bottom cup and the, the grape juice in the top cup. Grab them both. And, and we do this, why? We do this to, to remember, to remember the bread representing Christ's body given for us, that he was crushed and bruised for our iniquity. That the cup reminds us of his, of his blood poured out for us. So I, I have a couple invitations as, as they pass that out right now. Here's the first invitation for you this morning. Maybe you're stuck in sin. And, and maybe you've never come to that place where, where you've just said, I want to surrender everything to Christ. I, I'm done being the sheep that keeps going astray. I'm done thinking that I've got this all figured out. I want to I turn. The Bible calls it repent, where you turn from pursuing your own way and you say, I'm turning around to pursue Christ. And I want to do it this morning. I want to quit drifting off. I want to keep be, I want to quit being astray. Here's my invitation for you this morning. My prayer is this, that this morning will be the morning that you submit your life to Christ. Where you say, I'm following Jesus and I'm doing it this morning. Here's another invitation for you. Maybe you'd say, I've done that. I, I'm a Christ follower. I've given my life to Christ, but, but I can't say like Paul that I've counted all things as loss. I've been going through the motions. I've been doing the least amount I need to do to pass the test. This morning, as you hold the bread and hold the cup, that it would be a time of reflection for you. you say, Lord, Lord, where in my life am I letting sin go and I've quit fighting it? Where in my life have you called me on mission but I'm not serving? I'm not following, I'm not pursuing. Where in my life am I still wandering like a sheep when I don't have to because you've changed me? And that this morning, with the morning where you, you 
you again release that up to Christ. You live out of the truth of who who God says you are in Christ. And, And this morning, you confess that. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's a lack of mission. Whether your testimony is, I I don't know Christ. I I am the one in iniquity. I am the one far from God. Or whether your testimony is, I've submitted my life to Christ, but I need to confess I've not been serious about pursuing him. The, The same invitation goes out to all of us. If you're here this morning, here's the third invitation, and you're just carrying the weight, the weight of a sinful world. You're carrying the weight of what it looks like to pursue Jesus, and you feel that suffering, that this morning, this morning you would worship, you would celebrate, that you get to join in on the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And you'd feel his comfort and his peace. You would hear him say, little child, I've got it. I'm taking care of this for for my glory and your good. I've got this. And this morning, you could rest in that. Maybe in a way you haven't rested before. You'd see clearly again the cross of Christ as the hope you have for the now because you know of the hope you have for eternity. Listen, this morning, if you're in a place where you're saying, I have no desire to follow Christ this morning, or you're a Christ follower, I have no desire to get my life straightened out, then I would say this, Scripture would warn us to don't participate lightly in this. Don't, don't just grab the cup and grab the bread and go, it doesn't matter, I'm taking it anyway. Scripture say, don't do, you drink and eat judgment on yourself when you do that. So you have an option of of saying, well, I don't want to do that. I want to repent and just submit my life to Christ. That's the better option. But listen, if if you're like, I can't do it yet this morning, just let the cup pass. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's making judgment calls on you. If you're like, I'm not going to participate this morning. Let me pray for us. Then we're going to partake together. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I thank you for those here this morning some who are here and are not believers. God, so thankful that, that, that they're here knowing that, that, that you brought them, that, that you're drawing their hearts, that you're pursuing them, that, that, that Lord God, that this morning, that today could be a day of new life. Father, for brothers and sisters who are here this morning who are carrying burdens, God, that they could be lifted today. Those who are pursuing sin, it could be confessed and hearts transformed today. Those who are here and just being casual and apathetic about the mission we've been called to, that God, today would be a day where we change. Where we turn to you, where we say, this is, this is yours. That, that all this other stuff I count as loss to know you and to celebrate the gospel. Thank you that you pursue us, that you have not abandoned us, that you love us and call us precious. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.